Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hello, I'm Harvey Feierstein, and my memoir is called I Was Better Last Night. <laughs> when I say it, I didn't know, I didn't you know, like hit the last as much as you you really get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I've lived it, you know. <laughs> this is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Theater is an act of faith, as you know. You go to a performance, only the people in the theater know that that performance happened. Either you were there that night or you didn't, or else it was better last night. Which is why I think actors hang on to so much crap. You know, they all have like pieces of costumes and, you know, and posters and programs and all this stuff because we can't hang on to what we actually love doing, Mm. you know? A furniture maker can make himself a table and say, that's what I do. But an actor can't. Harvey Firestein's life is one of dreams coming true. He's won four Tonys for his acting and writing in shows like Torch Song Trilogy, Hairspray, and La Caja Foal. He played Robin Williams' brother and Mrs. Doubtfire. And one night, in his dressing room after a performance, he got to kiss his childhood crush, Richard Chamberlain. Well, he, uh, the, Richard Chamberlain, I mean, is a gorgeous creature. And especially on television, he's absolutely flawless. And, um, you know, he's this beautiful uh, a man. And and I was very attracted to him as a, as a child and, uh, and followed his career. Um, so, comes into my dressing room and he's sweet as anything. And I say to him, look, I, I have this... Terrible fantasy, you know, it's not, I I won't bite you or anything, but um, could you, would you um, uh, go along with me um, and make believe this is our home, my dressing room, this is our home, and and, and I'm going to be asleep on the couch, like, you know, like the lazy wife, and um, you come home from work, you know, and catch me sleeping on the couch and, and, um, and wake me up. And, um, and he said, sure. And so everybody else got everybody else to leave. And I turned off the lights and I laid down on the, on the, on the couch and he came in and, um, and leaned over and gave me a kiss and woke me up. It was like, it was like, oh, it was like, oh, every kind of fantasy. Yeah. But I just love that you, in the moment, you're like Richard Chamberlain in my dressing room. Let me quickly ask him to pretend he's my husband and I'm a sleeping housewife. (laughs) It was all worked out. Yeah. (laughs) Talking to Harvey means going on a journey. He's got a plan for where he's going to take you, even if it is not where you expected. And he told me he has always been like this, starting when he was a boy in the 1950s in a close-knit Brooklyn neighborhood. Well, all my life I studied art. I mean, um, uh, my parents didn't know what to do with me. I was one of those kids. I was a strange kid. (laughs) So in high school, 
which wasn't all gay high school, as I used to like to say, they just bust in the heterosexuals because they had to. But it was a, it was an art school, you know, and our teachers were very uh, political. In our classes, my teacher, Max Ginsburg, is playing uh, Arlo uh, Guthrie and Joan Baez and, and Bob Dylan and protest songs. And I'm painting women being burned in napalm mm. and um, we're listening to Buffy St. Marie. So I come out of that world where all of that was OK and where gay was normal. Mm. The straight people were the strange ones. Mm-hmm. They were off on their side. They were quiet and they stayed out of our way. We were loud. We were proud, I guess. Um, I didn't know that being gay was sad until I got out into the world and they told me that. Mm. And I said, no, 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 well, all the gay people I know are really kind of happy. Harvey finished high school in 1969, just as the gay rights movement in New York was beginning to take hold. His breakthrough show, Torch Song Trilogy, is a semi-autobiographical story of a gay man falling in and out of love in 1970s New York. There's another group you gotta watch your food stamps around. The hopeless. They break down into three major categories. Married. Just in for the weekend. Terminally straight. Those affairs are the worst. It later became a movie. Harvey delivers this monologue in front of a vanity while putting on his drag makeup. You go into them with your eyes open, knowing all the limitations, accepting them maturely. Then wham, bam, you're writing letters to dear Abby and you're burning black candles at midnight. Harvey was writing what he knew. One of the inspirations for what became Torch Song Trilogy came from a night of cruising at a place called The Trucks along Manhattan's West Side Highway. So you have these stations that trucks pull in, you know, to the warehouse and and empty their stuff out and put this stuff in. And they leave just the truck. And um, the rumor was that the owner of this one warehouse, that his son was gay, and that's why... this became the place to go. And you'd have a couple of hundred people having sex, um, you know, in the, in the dark, totally anonymous sex. The rule was no speaking. Um, Some people did use cigarettes. So use the cigarette to light it up to see if you wanted to see who you were having sex with. But what's the difference? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I just, I feel like I'm talking of another age. Well, it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was. And it was. It was the age of, of some kind of innocence. I mean, the police busted it up every now and then, and, uh, but they knew what was going on there. Um, but anyway, so one night I needed to stay in the city and not go home to Brooklyn uh, because I had a very early meeting. And I thought, you know what? I had a show that was a midnight show that we got out like at one in the morning. And I said, instead of going back to Brooklyn, I'll just go out and I'll find somebody and go home with him and have sex and sleep over and in the city but it didn't work out um it was you know probably a tuesday night or wednesday night monday night was always my favorite because it was all these people that didn't get laid over the weekend or had to see their family over the weekend and so they were very sexually frustrated so i used to love monday nights but um it was a night that wasn't so hot nobody was around to make a long story short but a good play um i had i went to the i ended up at the trucks must have been four in the morning. Um, somebody grabbed me 
used me for sex in such a way. And, and I was trying to talk to him, which was against the rules. And he kept hitting me on the shoulder, like, shut up. And, um, you know, and, and, and had this thing. It was certainly not a terrible thing that happened. There's no forcible sex here or anything like that. But as I left, I was thinking, you know, I just got really used. I didn't get what I wanted out of this. He got what he wanted. And I had a pad and paper and a, and a bench and a street light. What else does a writer need? Uh-huh. An experience, an experience, a pad of paper and a pencil. That's all we need. And the rest is magic. And I wrote this thing down that I thought was almost it was almost a feminist manifesto, you know. It was a feminist manifesto, Harvey style. The monologue he wrote was cutting, self-effacing, romantic, but cynical about love. It's so human that you are almost embarrassed to hear it, and yet you understand it completely. You laugh because it's like the man falling on the on the banana skin. You don't laugh because you want to see somebody hurt. You laugh because it's so fucking human. And I thought, oh shit, I, I've stumbled upon what actual comedy writing is about. And I and I've sort of strained to 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 continue that that kind of truth because comedy comes out of truth. Coming up, Harvey and I talk about his love life. Are these people that you've known for a long time, or do they tend to be people you're... Oh, that's none of your damn business. <laughs> a, gentleman does, a gentleman does not give away those sorts of secrets. We're still collecting your stories of personal style transformations and quandaries for an upcoming episode. So far, we've heard from some of you about how the pandemic changed your approach to clothing. Like this listener, Kate, who started weightlifting during quarantine. I now, as a almost 44-year-old woman, am wearing crop tops. I'm currently wearing one right now. I'm full-figured, and a crop top was never a thing I would have considered even in my younger years when I was probably thinner and maybe in better shape. Have you recently changed how you're thinking about your style? Or are you struggling to figure out how to represent yourself through clothing? Record a short voice memo for us chronicling your personal style transformation, and you can tell us about your ruts and frustrations too. You can send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. On the next episode, I talked to 33-year-old Tampa resident Mary Gundel about what led her to post a TikTok series about her experience managing a Dollar General while in the middle of a shift at work. The TikToks got her fired and also started a Dollar General workers movement across the country. It gets to that point in your life where you're just, you're like, if y'all want to fire me for it, then fire me for it. You know, I can't keep my head down anymore and I can't keep just kissing your butt anymore. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. 
Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. When we talked, Harvey Firestein was sitting at his computer, zooming from his office at his home in Connecticut. There was art around him, but it looked uncluttered. He's donated all his papers to Yale University. When you look back, when did you feel financially secure as an artist for the first time? You're holding up rubber bands. <laughs> Tell me I'm why. A bag of rubber bands because I was in a, I think, I think Torch Sun Trilogy was off Broadway at the time or was just about to open off Broadway. And I needed to do a bunch of paperwork. And I was at the bodega on my corner in, in Park Slope and I needed rubber bands. And I said to the owner, I said, have you, have you got, and he said, yeah. And he handed me a bag of rubber bands and I paid for it. And I stood there and I looked and I said, I just bought a bag of rubber bands. Rubber bands is something that my entire life, it's like I picked them up off the street or I say, or if one came in the mailman or whatever, and I saved rubber bands because rubber bands is not something you just buy. And that bag of rubber bands became a symbol to me that I somehow had some kind of security now. Did you just hold up? Did you just hold up a mailman rubber band that you got out of your drawer? Or was that a purchased rubber well, band? No, that's down, they're downstairs. No, no, no. This was from a bag of rubber bands that I bought. <laughs> I know the mailman rubber bands are downstairs by the, you know, in the, in my kitchen where I open the mail. Yeah. This is up in my office. But this is the only fancy the, rubber the bands. <laughs> the fa- fancy rubber bands end up here. I want to ask you about your brother, because I love the way you write about your brother. Well, he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Um, I I didn't know that you pronounced your last names differently. You have the same last name. You pronounce them differently. Uh And I was winning. And I was winning. (laughs) I was winning. It's a reason to become famous, to beat your brother at a house. (laughs) Exactly. It was my father's last name. And he pronounced it Feierstein. So I figure that's the way you pronounce it. Where the fuck they came up with this Feierstein and Feierstein, I'll never know. You know, it's like my mother pronounced it Feierstein. My brother pronounced it Feierstein. And then he, but he had, but he had two sons who now pronounced it Feierstein. So it's like, okay, I'm going to lose this war. But it is, it is definitely fun. It's something I really have enjoyed going into a meeting and being introduced as Mr. Firestein and Mr. Fierstein, and them sitting there. I thought, I thought they were brothers. <laughs> when did he begin, when did he start managing your money for you? Your brother. Uh, I think always. He's my older brother. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I didn't have any money for most of my life. Um, so it wasn't until later and and it's just he had more sense that way mm-hmm. i mean he's a lawyer and and so 
it was sort of more, 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 just more natural for him to overlook and oversee. I mean, who's going to care more about your life? And if he does a good job, then his kids inherit a lot of money. And if he does a lousy job, I'm moving in with him. So <laughs> he's going to do a good job. Did you always have a closeness together as brothers? The funny part is that we do have a closeness and yet we couldn't be more opposite. And yet we couldn't be more alike. So it's like in details, we couldn't be more different. But if there's a meeting, even if he came from L.A. and I came from Brooklyn, you know, we're always going to be the first ones to show up at a meeting. We're never going to be late. If you ask us for something uh, online, you know, like you need a request, it's done before. You know, the thing is, uh, we have that kind of thing that we both are like, but in other stuff, not alike at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's heterosexual. He is. <laughs> These days, Harvey is single. But in his memoir, he wrote about a few serious partners and short affairs. His last long-term relationship ended in 1996. But he still has plenty of romance. I started writing down a list of these guys because I knew I couldn't put them in the book. It's not... Nobody wants to sit and read a list of uh, people you fucked. But, uh, well, maybe they do. I don't know. <laughs> what do I know about the real world? But um, but I did start picking this list and started writing these stories. I've got it right here on my computer. And the name of the file. Are you ready for this? I am. Since you like the name of this, you like the name of this book. The name of that one is Bottomless. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what um, what have been your experiences with apps? Are we gonna get up to are we gonna get up to death? What's the other sex, death, and what? Rock yeah, and roll. money, no, your money. Other? Yeah, we're oh, ju- we're just moving through yeah. sex right now. I'm curious, like when you have looked at an app, like what do, do they pull you in? Do you find them convenient? Well, we were on the road doing Fiddler on the Roof, and um, you know, on the road is a pretty lonely life, but. There were a couple of us that were older, more mature members, and we were bitching about how we'd been on the road for a year and none of us had even had a date because mm-hmm. obviously we weren't going to mess around with anybody in the company. This is about 10 years ago, right? Yeah, okay. probably. Okay. So so we made a deal that we would go on these apps and 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 we made a bet. And, you know, I forget how much money it was, but whoever went on the bet and, and – um, and went on a date would would win. And uh, I was the only one who did it. So I went on, I don't even know what app it was, maybe Grindr. Uh-huh. I think Grindr was around then. Yeah. I don't know. So I put up, I put up a picture. And I mean, I, and I didn't make it. I, I, you know, I didn't put, I don't think I put Harvey Firestein, but I, I think I put Kevya. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, because I had the big, I had the big beard, right? You know, it wasn't like I could really hide. For all the fiddler fetishists out there, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I put little flowers around it. I mean, I wasn't, you know, and I didn't make it like I was trying to be. You know, it was like, and and um, I think I went out with two or three people that were not interested at all. They just wanted to meet the actor. You I know? see. Uh-huh. They were, but they were not interested in anything at all. But I did meet somebody. Um the big thing is I realized some time ago that um, I really suck at relationships. I, 
I don't take lovers. I take prisoners. I, mm. I just, mm. I go right in there and I start, and I go right into my fantasy and I'm like clearing drawers on the second date. I mean, I'm practically a lesbian. I, you know, I, 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 I like, you know, celebrating our, our first anniversary of our first kiss. You know, it's like, I don't do it well. Um, and I'm just, and I just realized that, that in the long run, the reason I make them so much of my life is because it keeps me away from my real life. Mm. If I've got somebody to focus on outside of myself, then I don't have to do any work on myself. Mm. I don't have to do my writing. I don't have to do my act. I don't have to do any of the stuff that I know I'm supposed to do. It's like my way out of homework. It's like mm. playing baseball instead of going to math class. When did you realize about yourself that you, that, that, that relationships were like, a, a procrastination tool. What phase of life were you when you started seeing them? Um, I think you know it way before you you're willing to admit it. But it was probably when I was with the lover that I was with when I got sober. Mm-hmm. We don't want to give away too much of that stuff. They gotta buy the damn book. <laughs> gotta say, gotta save some shit for the book. No, I, I promise you. I promise you, people will pick up the book. We'll give them these little teases. <laughs> um, but, but I, I do want to talk to you about um, getting sober, if, if, if that's okay, because I, I was struck that. Um, before you started going to recovery meetings yourself, you had a partner who was going through recovery, and you started going to Al-Anon, which is you know the the group of of people who love people who have addiction issues. And I wonder for you, did did going to Al-Anon, um, do you think it made it harder or easier for you to realize that you had a substance use issue that you wanted to address? Neither. Neither. Um... The act of going to Al-Anon was once again, one of those acts of fill my life with his stuff instead of my own. Mm -hmm. Like I was very disappointed when I got to Al-Anon that we don't talk about the other person. You only talk about yourself. Uh If I was in a relationship, it was always about how do I, how do I, negate myself? How do I uh, uh, push the other person forward? When you, I mean, you, you, you can't hide when you go to recovery meetings and you yourself are going to say, I think I have a problem. Um, what, what was that like for you as somebody who, you know, by that point, you, you have this career as a performer, and then you're in a meeting environment where you're standing in front of people and testifying. Did it feel at all related? Like, did it did you notice a performing aspect to it? No, because I had already been through Al-Anon. I yeah. think Al-Anon did so much for me in that way. Yeah. By the time I went to AA, which was, I don't know, five years later, whatever, however many years it was, I had gone to AA meetings with my partner. Mm-hmm. So I already knew all of this stuff. I was in such a low, horrible place. So I didn't care what anybody thought of me. It didn't matter. You know, I kind of come into this room and I'm going to sit in the corner and cry. Well, I didn't sit in the corner and cry. I sat in the first row and I cried because hmm. I knew that I knew it was a safe place to do that. I knew everyone in that room may not have gone through what I went through, but they went through their own shit or they wouldn't be sitting in that room. If they weren't judging me, it was wrong of them to do so, but it wasn't my business. I think for some for some people who get sober, um, 
the idea of uh, surrendering to a higher power, that can be an alienating question if that's not something that's part of your belief system. Um, for you, prayer became an important practice in, in recovery. Um, what did that look like for you? It was easy because, um, though I'm an atheist, I knew that prayer was a, just a way of focusing your own mind. Mm -hmm. But usually I prayed for acceptance. You know, the, 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 um, the serenity prayer was and still is a huge part of my belief system of, you know, make me okay with what I can't mm. fix. That's not what it's about. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day about the difference between writing the book and writing a play is you're writing a play, you come up with these characters, you come up with the situation, and then you let them go and you get the fuck out of their way as best as you can and let them speak and let them fight with each other and you stay the hell out of it. It's not your business. You know, it's like being in a family fight. You know, you stay back and watch them fight and you write it down because mm -hmm. <laughs> that's your job as a writer. You write it down, but it's not your job to control them. Hmm. And that's what playwriting feels like. Now on to death. Have you thought about who might be looking through your collection of papers at Yale and and what they might come across? Like, do you have you thought about that person in the future who might be studying your work? You know, one of the great parts, I mean, my favorite parts of being an atheist is I don't give a flying fuck. <laughs> I'm going to be dead. What the fuck do I care? You know, like I'm going to leave something behind, you know, like anybody else, I watch the news at night and up comes the thing that so-and-so died. And even if it's a big, huge star, you know, three or four seconds on the TV is what they get. And and you say, that's that's a life worth living. Hmm. That to, to, to be remembered in that way is worth, you know, it's so stupid. Um, I don't know and I don't care. Have you thought about, you know, I know that you think it's sort of like a not not a great way to to sum up a life, but have you thought about what the news alert might be when you're gone? What your three to four seconds on TV might talk about? You know, I used to tease Robin that I'd done all this political work and, you know, wrote Lacage and Torchon and all this other stuff. And and all anybody's going to remember us, I was your brother and Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> You know, and that's and that's the silliness of it all. I mean, half the world thinks I'm Harvey Weinstein. So what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> you know, how serious, how serious can you take it? That was Harvey Firestein. His memoir, I Was Better Last Night, is out now. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellow Duke and Gabriella Santana. The rest of our team includes Julia Furlan, Zoe Azule, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Lily Clark. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P-I-C-S. And the show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Daniel Cullinan in Ames, Iowa, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. 
Join Daniel and support what we do here by going to deafsexmoney.org slash donate. While I talked to Harvey, his dog, Charlie, was down below, listening along. Charlie is quite a talented dog. Charlie, there are certain songs that he cannot hear and not sing to. The opening of CBS Sunday Morning. (laughs) You know, Wynton Marsalis. I thought it was going to be like some show tune. No, the opening of CBS Sunday Morning. Let me see if I can just play this. (laughs) And he's singing live downstairs. Charlie! Charlie! It's enough! (laughs) I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 